Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy. I am one of the pastors here at Incarnation. And you might notice, uh, if you listen attentively, that the first few minutes of this sermon are a re-recording. They were not recorded at church on Sunday, but at my dining room table. You might hear helicopters in my neighborhood in the background, and you might notice the absence of children's voices in the background. Those are the clues. Uh, something went wrong with the recording for the first few minutes, so we're just giving it another go. Well, you might have noticed that for the past month or so, our lectionary, that's our schedule of Sunday readings that we follow, the lectionary has been giving us passages from the book of First Corinthians. And this Sunday, I focused on the reading from the first half of First Corinthians chapter 8. This is a book written to Christians in the city of Corinth, and it's written to them from the Apostle Paul in response to a letter that they sent to him, asking him to settle a dispute in their community. And what they want to know is this, is it okay for us to eat meat that's been sacrificed to pagan idols? Because back then, in that time and place, if you were a Gentile, and Corinth was a Gentile city, Jewish people had their own rules around meat, if you were a Gentile, this is where meat came from. It came from animals that had been slaughtered and offered to pagan gods in pagan temples, and then the leftovers would be served in these sort of restaurants that were on the temple grounds, or sold and packaged as meat in these marketplaces just outside the temple. And so for some Christians in Corinth, the answer to this whole question of whether they can eat this meat, it seems like it should be an easy yes. They've written to Paul arguing this from their knowledge, saying, hey, look, we all know that idols don't have any power. There's only one God and idols aren't real, so there is nothing to be afraid of and let's just enjoy eating this meat. But rather conveniently, the Christians who were arguing for this were most likely wealthy and sophisticated Christians in Corinth, sometimes called the strong in other places in Paul's letter. And that seems to be the way they think of themselves, as the strong. And the social lives of these Corinthians revolved around feasts in idol temples. That was just where they hung out. It's where they did their networking and went to parties and weddings and all sorts of gatherings. So eating idol meat was a really important part of their social world. And so noting this, just as a side comment before we move on, I want to note that any time our ethical reasoning leads us to condone or to explain what we already want to do, we should proceed with caution. That's what these wealthy Corinthians, the strong, are doing in this letter. And they might be right, we might be right, but any time we find ourselves making an argument that is conveniently in favor of what we're already doing, we should just pause, examine ourselves, be a little bit extra cautious. Well, anyway, the other Christians at Corinth, most likely the poorest in that community, they are still really sensitive about this idol meat. They don't think it's right to be eating this meat. Paul calls them the weak. 
Their conscience is really sensitive to idolatry, the way a weak stomach is really sensitive to certain foods. And I think it's worth mentioning here that idolatry, both then and now, is always really hard on the poor. Idols give nothing, but they demand everything, sacrifice upon sacrifice that the poor can't afford. And when idols aren't happy, when they send floods or drought or some other punishment, it's often the poor who suffer most. And so it makes sense that the poor would have such a weak stomach for idolatry because Jesus has delivered them from this whole oppressive system of idol worship. Jesus has reversed the order of things. He's given everything and demanded nothing. He has become poor and weak. He has become a sacrifice. And that is why Jesus is such good news to the poor. And they are rightly wary of idolatry. So all of this is the situation presented to Paul, the question they've asked him, can we eat this meat? And essentially, over time, Paul answers the Corinthians question by saying, no, don't do it. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Your theology might be right, you might know the right things, but your heart is wrong. You are failing to love your weaker brothers and sisters, and you're failing to grasp the real dangers of idolatry. And ever since Paul wrote this letter, Christians have been trying to apply the ethical arguments that he makes in this passage to all sorts of situations in our everyday life. They've been trying to use this to navigate tough questions about our rights, our freedoms, our responsibilities to one another. What is our equivalent of meat sacrificed to idols or eating in pagan temples? Who is our weaker brother? Well, I mentioned that this is our lectionary reading and our Sunday lectionary runs on a three-year cycle, meaning that over the course of three years, we're gonna hear most of the words of the Bible. And then at the end of three years, we start all over again. And that means the last time we preached on 1 Corinthians 8 was, you guessed it, three years ago. It was early February. 2021. And if you think back to three years ago, our country at that time was deeply, deeply divided. And Christians, the church, was deeply divided. And this passage from 1 Corinthians 8 was being used to defend both sides of some of the most divisive issues I know because I preached this passage back in February 2021, and I remember in the course of my research noticing how often it was being used on both sides of these arguments that were dividing the church. Arguments about whether to mask, whether to get the vaccine, which was brand new then, whether to obey the latest lockdown orders, whether to remove Confederate monuments, whether to vote Republican or Democrat, whether to participate in certain protests, 
how to interpret the 2020 election, how to interpret the events in the Capitol in January 2021, and so much more. I remember finding so many surprising and contradictory interpretations of this passage at the time, depending on someone's theological bent or political persuasion, they might identify the meat sacrificed to idols or the weaker brother differently. Whose interpretation was right? Well, full disclosure, I'm not going to answer that today. But I'm always happy to sit down over coffee, to listen to your concerns, to hear how you're navigating these questions in light of scripture, to wrestle with these words and discern together. But I'm not gonna do that right here. What all of this shows though, all of these different applications of 1 Corinthians 8 is the real challenge of Christian ethical discernment. That's a challenge that Paul himself fully grasps. It was the challenge facing the church at Corinth with this new issue that Jesus hadn't explicitly taught about. And it's a challenge that is still facing us today because those 2021 divisions haven't healed. If anything, they are more entrenched. They are deeper and more painful. And so in this climate, how do we follow Jesus? How does our loyalty to Jesus fit into the social and cultural and political world around us? How do we know what to choose and how to live, what to participate in and what to resist? And today's passage in chapter eight is the beginning of a long, complex, three chapter argument that touches on all of these topics through the particular lens of eating temple meat. Paul is building an argument that won't end until the end of chapter 10, and it's sort of like he's showing his work in a long calculus problem, so that by the time that he gets to his conclusion, by the time he says, don't eat that meat, he has shown us how we can get there too, how we can do this work of Christian ethical discernment for ourselves in our own pressing problems. And I love this about Paul's letters. I love how they give us this picture of someone doing theology and ethics in real time, in response to real circumstances, in real Christian communities filled filled with real people and real questions with no simple answers. I love Paul's creativity, his situational flexibility, and his pastoral sensitivity to meet people wherever they are so that they can encounter and follow Jesus. And I'm reminded in this of a conversation that Katie and I had with Bishop Chris shortly after he was consecrated last year. We were just meeting, talking about our church, getting to know him, and we talked about all of you, the kinds of people who worship here, the kinds of questions that you ask and wrestle with, And Bishop Chris encouraged us saying something along the lines of keep hanging out where things are messy. Because he said, in my experience, that is often where we find Jesus. That is the point, isn't it? To find Jesus. Because God in his wisdom did not give us a treatise on situational ethics. 
He did not tell us exactly what to do in every question we will face in 2024. God gave us a person. He gave us himself in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the source and the end of all our ethics. We can only discern how to live, how to be wise, what to decide by staying really close to Jesus. That's how Paul begins chapter 8. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. This is the basis of this whole three-chapter argument. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If you're using your knowledge as a license for freedom or to demand something from others, then you don't have what Paul here calls necessary knowledge. And so what is that necessary knowledge? Well, Paul says it's not something we know at all. It's actually something we love. It's God himself. And the way Paul defines love here feels all backwards because he says loving God is what happens in us as we are known by God. So that what matters is not what we know, but that we are known by God. This is the necessary knowledge that Paul talks about, and this necessary knowledge is being tethered to God in love, loving the God who first loved us. This is where all of our ethical choices start and end. All of the questions we face ought to drive us back to this wellspring of love, this wellspring of all goodness, truth, and beauty to God himself. We naturally want knowledge. I do. I love knowledge. We wanted knowledge from the very beginning, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. But God knows that what we need most is not knowledge. It is himself. It is necessary knowledge. And God freely gives us himself in the person of Jesus. And as we love him, we are made like him. We become people who then give ourselves in love. And love builds up, as Paul says. It builds up our relationship with God, our relationship to each other. It builds up our church and our communities and our societies. Love builds. It builds bridges of understanding. It builds acts of extraordinary mercy. Love builds up. But knowledge puffs up. Our theology might be right, our ethical reasoning might be sound, but there is a way of being right that misses the point, that misses God and his purpose for us. And I know I've experienced this, I suspect we all have, where there is some moral quandary in which we are sure we're right. We are sure we're in agreement with Jesus' life and teaching and the whole moral arc of scripture and that those we disagree with are wrong. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. We ought to be seeking this kind of ethical clarity as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's okay to have and hold convictions, but we need to pay attention to what's happening inside of us as we do. That's what this passage invites us to start with. Does this knowledge make us love and enjoy God more? 
is it creates space for me to be more and more known by God? Or does it actually puff me up? Does it crowd out room for God? Does it pull me farther from God? Does it make me joyless and bitter and unloving? Does this knowledge I have build others up or does it destroy them? And that last point, the destruction of others, that brings us all the way to the conclusion of Paul's argument to the Corinthians. Because the first part of his argument in chapter 8, what we read today, centers on the dangers of knowledge over love to their own souls. But there is this other danger that Paul gets to later in the book, and that's the danger to others. That is the real danger of idolatry to their souls and to the strong Corinthians. In verse 7, Paul tells the strong that not everyone has the knowledge that they have. Not everyone in their community is convinced that these idols are nothing. He says, some of your brothers and sisters in the church have lived a long time under idolatry. It's hard for them to believe nothing is happening when they're eating that meat. And when they see you eating, they might be tempted to eat too, even though everything in them is telling them that's wrong. Even though Christ died to rescue them from that world of idolatry. In verses 10 and 11, Paul says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Christ died. There is this real risk of destruction in the way our actions impact others. And it becomes even clearer a few chapters later when Paul concludes his whole argument in chapter 10 by saying, therefore flee from idolatry. Food isn't anything, idols aren't anything. But what happens in the temple is a sacrifice to demons, and I don't want you to participate with demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. In other words, yes, idols are not God, but that doesn't mean they don't have power. Eating at their table and consuming their food will shape you. It's a way of participating in the kind of oppressive powers that Jesus came to free us from, as our gospel story just told us today. And so we ask, where are the tables of idols where we are eating or where we're tempted to eat? What are we consuming that could pull us or pull others away from the life that God has offered us? This passage invites us to think really carefully about whose temples we spend time in, whose tables we eat from, what we consume, and what we know. And it urges us to stay tethered to God in love, to practice that necessary knowledge of union with him, to remember that Christ died for each one of us, and that we are not our own, we are for one another. That is what we practice each week at this table, at our table, where God sacrifices himself in love so that we can be joined to him and joined to one another as we come and take and eat. So let's pray.
God, would you know us and draw us to yourself in love? Would you help us to share more and more in that life of love for which we were made? And would you make us people who love and whose love builds one another up? Search us and know us, God. Amen.